0: The Future of SMART, a project of Grantmakers for Education, will explore ideas at the intersection of education, equity, and philanthropy that point us towards a radical re of our education system. We'll hear from those working at the edge of what's possible and explore what it means to support transformative change for young people and their communities.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of the Future of Smart podcast, a project of Grantmakers for Education. My name is Olga Joshi Hansen, Chief Program Officer at Grantmakers for Education, author of the book The Future of Smart, and your host. <laughs> I'm speaking to you as we emerge out of a global pandemic that has upended a number of educational systems and structures, in-person learning, grading, standardized testing, accountability systems, and GPAs, just to name a few. As parents, employers, and citizens, we've learned a lot about the ways in which the system wasn't serving students well. Now, disruption is difficult, but it's also an opportunity for us to move forward in new ways. The Future of Smart Podcast is an opportunity for us to think about the challenges that we've been attempting to address in education over the last couple of decades, bring new frameworks and new voices into the conversation of what's possible, and to tie all of that to the work of education funders and the communities that they're serving. In this podcast, we're going to trace the popular idea about what it means to be smart or capable, what a good education looks like, including the very idea of school, back through two main factors a very particular set of historical events and priorities, and underexplored aspects of the human brain. We hear a lot of talk about the factory model of education. And many of our efforts to reform and improve our education system have been centered on disrupting the factory part of that model. The problem with this is that we haven't stepped back to understand the foundational values and assumptions that undergird the factory model. And so our efforts have mostly involved bolting on fixes to a fundamentally flawed model of education. So it's no wonder that billions of dollars and countless hours on the part of educators, policymakers, advocates, and funders have shifted very little in terms of academic outcomes for students. And at the same time, they've eaten away at the social, emotional, and psychic well-being of young people. To go forward, I think we need to start by going back. Our education system is the way it is as the result of specific historical conditions that harness certain tendencies in the human brain. Together, these created a worldview that's very hard to see outside of. And we've never really stepped back to ask whether organizing schools according to this worldview serves us well today. The worldview we're going to explore in this podcast emerged in Europe about 500 years ago. And it instilled in us certain ideas about who we are as people, how we should relate to one another, and how and why we educate our children. One of the ideas that emerged out of this modern European worldview was the idea of our brains as the center point of our being and of our consciousness. This misconception is the foundation of our pretty narrow ideas about education, learning, and human capability. This modern Western supremacy culture is hard to shake because this way of understanding ourselves— Our world and knowledge is incredibly sticky, was exported from Europe around the world, and so it's difficult to move away from because it's embedded in our lives incredibly deeply. In this podcast, we're going to explore how certain ideas become assumptions, how certain tendencies of our brains came to be seen as superior and have eventually come to filter our entire reality, How our ideas about what school is and what learning is have for centuries been dictated by priorities that we're no longer invested in, and how those assumptions and those brain tendencies have shaped our whole society, and how changing the future of SMART can change the future of the world. We're going to hear from thought leaders, practitioners, advocates, and young people about how to see beyond these frameworks not only as professionals in our roles as funders, policymakers, educators or parents, but also for us as individuals. Today, I'm joined by Richard Tugley, who's board chair for Grantmakers for Education as well as president and CEO of the Denver Public Schools Foundation. Over the course of his career, Richard has worked at the municipal level and helped build programs that engage communities in supporting young people's holistic well-being and learning. These experiences have informed his thinking on the nature of transformative change, and how philanthropy can not only catalyze transformational systems-level change, but help to sustain these changes over time. Welcome, Richard. Thanks so much for joining me today.
0: Ah, Thank you for having me. My pleasure.
1: So today's conversation is going to be an introduction to a podcast that we hope is an opportunity for us to take a look at the education landscape today. We're emerging out of a global pandemic that has upended systems and structures, and disruption is both difficult, but also a moment to move forward in new ways. So the Future of Smart Podcast is an opportunity for us to think about the challenges that we've um, been attempting to address in education over the last couple of decades, potentially bring new frameworks and new voices into the conversation of what's possible, and to tie all of that to the work of education funders and the communities that they're serving in terms of the possibilities that exist at this moment. Thanks for being. Being here, Richard, um, and I will turn it over to you for your thoughts.
0: Yeah, no, this is this is uh, incredible. Thank you, first of all, for having me here, um, and second, thank you for writing the book, um, <laughs> "The Future of Smart." Uh, it was an eye opener for me. Uh, it was an eye opener, not just because of the insights that you provided, but an eye-opener on, on the role that funders play in this transformation of systems. And, uh, you know, I have so many thoughts about it in terms of what can we do, uh, what can grant makers um, for education as a network of funders uh, in this space can can h- contribute and help towards this transformation because it is challenging. I've been in this work for over three decades now. Um, and it seems to be a constant across, not just across the country, but across the globe of how do we transform our system so that it is really maximizing the potential of, of young people. You know, my very first job out, uh, out of school, and actually I was still in school when I was working for the Conference of Mayors uh, as one of their program officers um, to re-grant federal dollars to cities on... Um, uh, women's health and family and children's issues. Uh, so that's how I got introduced to what are the needs of young families, of women uh, with children, um, and the kind of intersection between education, social service, and health. So that those three, how, how they interplay in communities and how small cities, in particular, uh, non-rural but smaller urban settings that doesn't – quite have the infrastructure of large urban metropolitan cities, how do they grapple uh, with addressing these issues? So I I was doing that, I was helping mayors um, with, with setting up with committee meetings and discussing those challenges and how they can collectively address those challenges. And then I transferred to Public Education Network, where I really went deep into education reform and the role that local education funds and school foundations play in not just um, jump-starting ideas on, on transformation and reform, but sustaining it as well. As you know, part of the challenge in, in systems transformation is the leadership keeps changing, right? There's there's always a churn in terms of who's in charge, whether it's school boards, superintendents, or other community leaders. You know, every time there's an election, you know, communities hold their breath in terms of what agenda now is going to be the dominant one um, in our communities. So I did that for about over a decade and then ran my own um Middle school um, academic support program in in Washington DC called Higher Achievement, and that's where I really got sharpened by um, by knowing how to implement these programs within a within a school system that is transforming. Uh, just in my. Seven, uh, year tenure at higher achievement. We went through three superintendents within those seven years, right? So I really learned, um, you know, how to adjust, how to position, how to, how to really set the program to, to survive through those transitions and expand it, uh, across the mid Atlantic at the same time. Uh, and then most recently I, I moved to Austin, Texas for nine years to, head up the anti-erotic foundation, which provided support, uh, funding support to expanded learning opportunities and out of school time programs. So got the experience of working at the periphery, not necessarily at the center of, of systems reform, but what does the community, how can the community uh, help in terms of extending these learning supports? And then most recently, not just um uh, uh, about a month ago I moved to Denver to head up the Denver Public Schools Foundation which is um, working directly with the school district um, as its strategic fundraising partner uh, but still independent uh, from the district so that we can really establish deep relationships in the community um, so I've really run the gamut of you know working at the municipal level working within uh within philanthropy and um, and its role in sustaining policy, running my own program, funding programs, and now working side by side with the district um, in terms of, of how to um, support its key priorities um, in teaching and learning.
1: I love the I love the breadth of experience that you've had. I'm curious what what have you seen and observed about education philanthropy, um, the way it's approached it, the work, um, and where where the kind of um where it is at the moment in terms of folks thinking and talking about the future
0: you know it was funny i was just having a conversation about this yesterday with a colleague of mine who who i've also shared this kind of pathway into philanthropy and i said remember those times when when we just went from reform to reform and and titles were just changing uh you know goals 2000 to uh uh no child left behind to you know all children succeed to esea and you know but it seems like every time there's an iteration we don't take the lessons learned from the previous reform strategy and make sure that this new iteration which we know there will be iterations but at least we should know how each iteration is a better version of the previous one, right? But it seems like we're going in circles. But in terms of education philanthropy, I think that the pandemic most especially has upturned a lot of of our strategies, thinking that by either by investing uh, in one-off programs or uh uh specific initiatives um that we, we can see and generate outcomes that uh that we're trying to generate or um uh, you know invest in whole hog kind of systemic approach and say everything has to be every you know the the whole kit and caboodle has to be part of this systemic um uh, uh, reform initiative with lots of monies, right? Um, two challenges remain overwhelming for 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 us collectively uh, in philanthropy, and and I and I think individually as individual funders in our respective communities um, and specialties. One is the scale, you know, this question of scale. How can we invest in initiatives that can really have an impact on the broadest number of students, not just uh, groups of students, but just across the board, whether, you know, whatever the race or ethnicity? And the second is are we measuring it? Are we measuring these correctly, right? So there's the, 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 the broadness of impact, and then are we measuring the right things? Are we looking at the right outcomes? Um, And when we say we want impact, do we really know what that means? Um, So I I think we've done so much uh, in terms of um, testing and piloting and trying things out, right? Uh, And we've done a great job uh, collectively, especially when I attend a Grantmakers for Education conference, I'm always struck by the best practices or the promising practices that a number of of our members are generating along with their grantee partners. But these two things still, you know, are, are floating above my head in terms of how to make this work for more students and are we measuring the right things in terms of their growth and development.
1: And I, I'm listening to you and thinking about some of the programming we've had over the last six to nine months with, with Grantmakers for Education, and those two themes emerge a lot. Yeah. Right? We're having a whole series with uh, PDK and the Spencer Foundation about the future of education, right. and we keep swirling around this, right? Yeah. What does it mean to have impact? Are we defining the right things? How do we think differently about measurement? And this kind of gets to to the future of SMART, yes. and what I'm hoping that we will do together in terms of it feels as though we We just need to take a slight tangent off of the usual conversations we're having. It sort of feels like people say we want to do something differently, but then it's still a question of, well, how do we create better assessments that measure broader things as opposed to are there different ways to think about how we know and how we know whether students are doing well? And are there different modalities for knowing and for collecting evidence and data that maybe aren't about standardized tests or about right. tests they're just a completely different way of doing it That's um, right. but but i think you've put your put your um, finger on the pulse of what's going on. And I do also love the way, so often in these conversations, it's an either or, that Mm -hmm. everything we've done is bad or everything you know was a failure. And it's not. A lot of what we've done over the last 20 years has illuminated and made very visible the ways in which our systems have not necessarily been serving all students. I think it's really lit a fire in communities, among parents, among advocates to do better. And so it's an and. What do we have to then add into the things that we've been doing, conversations that we've been having. So it's not always about throwing out or making wrong. It's to be better and more useful. How do we, how do we move forward from here? That's
0: right. You know, one of the, one of the things I admire about the Gates Foundation, they issued uh, out a letter saying, Hey, you know, we've tried investing in these initiatives and some of them uh, presented promising data and some of them, you know, Basically, we we would deem um, as as producing you know not the, <laughs> not what we intended to produce, and so they were forthcoming and open about what what they wanted to see happen, that didn't happen, and what their intentions were that um, didn't necessarily generate in the results they wanted to see. But owning up to it and saying we've learned from this, and now we're 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 choosing a different path but based on what we've learned, right? So not necessarily scrapping you know that whole strategy, but taking the best out of it, um, sustaining those best uh, prom- uh, and, and promising practices. but trying out a new uh, trying out a new path and that's what I, I meant about you know we went from uh, reform strategy to reform strategy without without taking the next step of what is better, or what's a better version of the previous step, so that we are in an iterative process. So, Oka, I'm 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 curious, um, what made you decide to write the book, and and what is the uh, what's the intention of this? Um, is it? Did you did you write it with the intention of having school systems as your audience or funders as your audience? So uh, I'm, I'm just curious as to how does it all start?
1: Yeah, thanks for asking that. So I've been thinking about the ideas in this book for two decades, but it never quite clicked for me until the pandemic. So for many years I have thought that we need to engage in important conversations about education, right? About the purpose of education, about what we want for our children, about what our children need. But I realize I ended up writing the book during the pandemic because I see the conversation about education being really related to other conversations and debates we're having at this moment both in America and globally about the kinds of economic, social, political, environmental justice systems we want to shape our lives and communities. I guess I wanted to contextualize the conversation about education in a bigger conversation about equity and justice and what it means to actualize them across our social systems So I've had the privilege and the challenge of moving around a lot between countries and cultures. And the privilege of that is that I've gotten to see how different places approach this thing we call education, you know, what they do, how they treat young people, how they define and measure success. The challenge is that when you're always moving between things, it's really hard to belong to anything. And so that was... Maybe the reason that I've always been drawn to educational experiences and contexts that prioritize the human relational side of helping young people to grow and develop, which is a really big part of the way I approach this book.
0: Nice. One of the things I like about, at, at, closer to the end of the book, you mentioned that we all can contribute something, right? Principals, teachers, parents, students, community members, that we we actually can do something proactively to make sure that there's this kind of comprehensive and and diverse set of supports that we can provide uh, to students. And somewhere in the book too, you mentioned um, that school systems really are part of a larger ecosystem, right? Where, where family and, you know, everything, you know, even parks and recreation systems and, and, the whole environment, the whole community is really a learning environment, uh, not just for students, but for everybody. And so how, how did we get into this notion of once you step into the classroom, it's really a, a very one-dimensional flow of I'm the teacher, you're the student, you know, information's going to flow from, from one to the other, right? How did we get stuck in that?
1: Well, what a, the first part of the book is really addressing that question specifically, and I say that in order to go forward, I think we need to go back, and we need to go back further than we often do. So a lot of us um, you know, talk about the factory model, the industrial model of education, and we assume that there's something about that structure of a factory model that's the issue. And what I would argue is that the factory model was birthed out of a very particular view of the world and of human beings and of this thing called education. So about 500 years ago in Europe is when a big shift happened in Western culture. Before that time, you know, most human cultures across the, across, across the globe were quite similar and people lived in kind of small groups. We were migratory. We understood ourselves to be part of a living earth and a living system. We understood ourselves to be connected to that. And education was this process of a young person in their community learning to live and to do the things they needed to survive and contribute. And about 500 years ago, that view of the world was kind of questioned very deeply in Europe at the birth of the scientific revolution, when there was this this inquiry into if the world is more like a machine, and that was the metaphor that emerged, if it's more like a machine, can we take it apart? Can we understand the pieces? And then if we understand the pieces, we can understand and manipulate the whole. And so this is what I talk about as the the kind of shift from the previous worldview, which is a more holistic, indigenous, ecological worldview, to a more modern Western, Cartesian, Newtonian worldview that separated things out decontextualized them, didn't think of human beings as embodied beings. We, th- we began to think about ourselves as um, abstract conceptual machines, right? Descartes said, I think, right. therefore I am. That's right. And that really kind of sums it up. And that worldview moved from the sciences into the social sciences. And people began to think about political systems and economic systems and then education through this lens of Machine efficiency abstraction. And the factory model of education, this this idea of you take children, they're blank, they're empty. You put them into this place called a classroom, right. and you have a teacher who pours knowledge into them and they keep moving through until they're done. Mm-hmm. and then they leave, right? That's what the factory model is as a model. And so, you know, as much as we talk about reforming and innovating, I would argue that a lot of our fundamentalist assumptions in education are still rooted in that Cartesian-Newtonian view of the world. But what's interesting, you said something about our whole world has shifted. Different worldviews birth different systems. Right. And one of the things I wanted to do in the book was to place education in the context of this broader set of conversations we're having at this moment. Right. We are having debates in America and across the world about economic systems, about our Um, environment and ecology, about criminal justice systems, about paternalism versus more liberatory Mm -hmm. approaches to being together. And the Cartesian Newtonian worldview births systems that tend to be more paternalistic, that tended to, it was the worldview that allowed us to enslave people and dehumanize people and perpetrate genocide against people, right? So a lot of our systems are limited in that they are birthed out of a Cartesian Newtonian worldview, a holistic ecological worldview births very different kinds of systems, behavioral economics, ecology, um, liberatory approaches, health as wellness, right? Not just about avoiding death. And so education is the same way. And so I want us to be able to say, what is the intersection between the types of transformations Mm. we want to make in society generally, and this new way of thinking about education?
0: right so so to me, as I was reading the book- there's a story I want to tell you uh that happened uh last week with my with my nephew, and we were having a conversation about uh literature, but prior to that um I was having problems with my computer, and so I said, yeah, you know, I don't know how to do this, and he said something about um. Uncle Richard, why don't you try this? And, and it worked, right? What he suggested worked. So we were having a conversation about how much he's learning about uh, his computers and then he reminded me of a conversation we had like prior to the pandemic. He says, you see, you, you, you berated me when I didn't know about Canterbury Tales or <laughs> <laughs> we were talking about English literature and I said, when I was in high school, I was reading all these books and he said, "Well, now you're 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 much older, and you still don't know how to fix your computer. So, to me, it's like you know, there's a different way that that young people are are learning now. So, uh, which leads me to this question of that the, there seems to be this dissection between education and learning, right? That we seem to have focused so much on on a type of education, and that we are all focused on." education reform that's about systems and how adults work or how we prefer to work versus what does a supportive learning environment look like, right? And mm-hmm. and in your um, um, Annie Murphy Paul talks about in her book, Extended Mind, about how the environment actually influences how we think and how we think is actually uh, more than just using our brain. It's, it's, These all external factors are involved, uh, whether you're sitting out in the park, you know, trying to understand a book or whether you're inside trying to figure out, you know, computer problems. Right. Uh, So this notion of why aren't we talking about um, learning reform uh, as opposed to, you know, uh, just changing a system that is only working for one side of of the population and and. What does it mean to have a a student-centered learning movement?
1: That question is really interesting because it gets to, I think, a fundamental question. Why is change so hard um, for us as human beings and as societies and communities? And um, part part of what I talk about in the book and that we'll talk about in this podcast is the ways in which our brains themselves tether us to ways of being and ways of understanding the world that may not be as useful to us um, Mm -hmm. as they should be. So a a gentleman named Ian McGilchrist has done a lot of research on the brain, and he talks about left and right hemispheric tendencies of human beings. This is not about the left brain, right brain thing that's been popularized, You know that the right brain is about art and the left brain is about math. It is saying that the two hemispheres of the human brain do two very different things, but they have to work together and apart to allow us to live. The right hemisphere of the brain is like this big end of a funnel. We live in a world with thousands of sensations and experiences um, coming at us. And the right hemisphere of the brain takes all of that in. It sees patterns. It sees similarities. It understands implicit meaning. The left hemisphere of the brain takes all of that information and its tendency is to make it useful. So it simplifies it. It abstracts it. It creates systems and schemas that are very easy for us to manipulate. Ideally, those then go back to the right hemisphere and are used mm. in service of something bigger. But the left hemispheric tendencies are very sticky mm. because they are simple. And Ian Chris's point is that since about 500 years ago, our world and our systems have become ever more left hemispheric. Right. And so when we think about solving problems, We tend to go to the most technocratic solution, right? The one that feels like we can be efficient about this, we can manipulate a certain part of the system, right? We can focus on new standards, or we can focus on educator effectiveness, or we can focus on accountability, and that will fix the problem. A more right hemispheric, more holistic, indigenous way of thinking about it is to do what you said, which is this is a complex living system, and our brains exist in this complex way. Learning exists in this complex way, and it's difficult because it's about large systems, lots of people, the richness of community. And as human beings, I don't think we have spent as much time understanding how ecological systems work and change. That's been changing. I think in the last 10 to 15 years, we've been learning more and more about it. But part of the, the idea of this podcast is, let's explore what it means to design out of a systems way of thinking. And how would we approach change? How would we approach measurement? How would we approach the idea of creating learning experiences and ecosystems If we were designing in this more holistic way. And I think you've mentioned this a number of times, right? How do we get out of classrooms, out of this idea of the teacher being the deliverer to put the student at the center of an ecosystem in which they begin to define and drive and experience their learning differently? That's right.
0: So I'm I'm putting myself in the perspective of, of a school, of a district leader to say, that's all great. It sounds wonderful. But I was tasked to raise test scores. I was tasked to make sure that, you know literacy that my 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 high school graduates um, can actually write <laughs> and calculate. Uh, that is great. But nobody is asking me to measure, you know ecosystem learning supportive environments or are are you know, are my students feeling better about you know, a group interaction? You know they did yesterday. There's no Mm -hmm. measurement or, or assessment for those kinds of things. So I'm in a bind, right? Mm -hmm. I'm expected to deliver these outcomes. All these other things sound wonderful. How do we change? How we change that mindset?
1: That is the billion dollar question, (laughs) isn't it? Isn't it, Richard? And I will tell you in one minute. Um, you know, in the book, I talk about three different buckets of 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 schools and education programs. The first is kind of conventional, which is our modern day version of factory model education. The second is what I call whole child innovative reform, which I think is about 95% of what we have out there, which is and, – and funders and policymakers have really driven this over the last 20 years – but we basically see what doesn't work about the conventional way of operating, and we bolt on solutions. Mm-hmm. We say so- social-emotional learning is really important, or project-based learning is really important, right. or family engagement. But we bolt on these interventions in an effort to kind of take care of the shortcomings. The problem is there are so many shortcomings right. because our, our existing system doesn't reflect human development and learning and any of that. and it, And so it kind of buckles under its own weight. And the third bucket of schools I talk about is human-centered liberatory, and they are designed out of a very different set of values. And they exist Mm -hmm. across all kinds of governance models in our country. So we have a classic case of having to do a both-and, which is, I say to a district leader or a school leader, yes, of course, you need to make the existing system work as well as it can for the students that it's serving. And we want to help you do that. But we are going to take a look at where we want to go. 20 years from now, if we Mm -hmm. want our whole system to be more human-centered, more liberatory, this transformed way of doing things, how are we learning now what it means to support those kinds of programs and what kind of elements exist in those programs? And how do we help you have interventions today that are getting you towards that transformed system? So instead of funding um, just standalone social-emotional programming, how are we going to help you invest and take the time with your educators to really understand how to hold space for young people and build authentic relationships with mm-hmm. them, inside of which you can help them develop social and emotional skills and are going to build the foundation for a very different kind of relationship in, their cl- in your classroom and, and school? Right? And I think funders are such a huge part of this because to make ecosystem-level change, We have to convene community members, partners, policymakers, advocates, students, right? We need to bring all these folks together and have the conversation. What do we really want for our students? Right. How do we carve out space in the existing system To begin building new systems and structures, right? New ways of counting learning that Mm -hmm. might not happen inside of a classroom or that might happen at home for students who are learning different languages or in different cultures. How do we, um, you know, do accountability differently? So it's not based on standardized test scores and it's really community accountability. How do we do higher education admissions? Mm -hmm that's really rich and meaningful, right? And I think it is funders and policymakers and all of these other leaders in the space who can be creating space to do that and investing. You, You talked about this in your own job, right? superintendents change, legislators change. So we need to build coalitions that are robust That's right. and that can last over 10 years as we do this work. And we need funding that is long-term and we need flexibility in terms of how we define and measure impact. So I think it's a classic case of both and, yeah, um, yeah. right? It's not either or, but even if we could shift 10% or 5% right. of funding to do it, it would be hugely transformative. That's right.
0: You know, the other piece that I, I love about um, your message in the book is this notion of how do we define success? And, you know, you know, young people are, are very much attuned, or at least my observation is they're more attuned now about, you know, what they want to do, what they want to be. Um, college isn't for everybody, but, um, you know, there are career paths that, that young people can take. Uh, once they're very clear about what they want to do in life. Um, that a community needs to be able to pave the way for that to for that to happen. what's what's the shift that we need to make? I know I know we talked about shifts in systems thinking, but this notion of what how do we redefine what success means for our students? Mm-hmm. Um, if not not the traditional way of, hey, you know, you study hard, You graduate from high school, you go to college, get a good job, right?
1: Yes. Um I hear this from students a lot when I when I interview them and they say we're really tired of being told to kind of sit down <laughs> spend a lot of time that we don't enjoy not living right as the and then and then you can live once you graduate high school and graduate college then you can live and they say I want to live now right I want to be out kind of exploring issues that I care about cha- making changes that I care about now so one of the ways I think about this is that And we're going to have Jamie Cassup as a guest who is with, um, he was Google's education evangelist. And, you know, he and others talk a lot about the pace and the rate of change. I would say probably I have two kids, they're 13 and 15. I am probably among the first of a generation of parents that has to live with the reality that up until now, the safest path was probably to say to my kids, do what I did, and then you'll be okay. But the world is changing so quickly, non-biological intelligence, technology, all of that. It is changing at a pace that means that if we put our kids on the same path we came down, we are putting them on a path that is crumbling towards Mm -hmm. them, literally. There are no set of standards. There is no amount of content. There is no amount of even, quote I'm using air quotes, soft skills Mm -hmm. that are going to prepare them for a world that is changing faster than any of us can imagine. And so I think when we talk about success, and and this gets to a question of equity, right? I think there are very sincere conversations right now that say, look, every student should have access to rigorous coursework mm-hmm. and calculus and, you know, all the kind of things that make them eligible for the best colleges or to get into STEM. And that is well-meaning. But I would say we need to understand that what students need is to learn to learn. Mm-hmm. They need to learn to develop the deeply human capabilities they will need to navigate a world that is ambiguous and constantly changing. They need to be prepared for a world in which don't, no one person can know everything and that we are going to have teams of people working together on Everything that we do. And therefore, we don't need one person to have everything. We need one person to really know who they are, what they bring to the table, to know how to work with other people who bring different skills. Um, And so it's hard, right, because there's not going to be one definition of success that we can just stamp on a certificate for everyone. And I think that's very difficult for us because in America and around the world, we have systems that have always given privilege to certain groups and have held other groups back. And so in a way, we've tried to human proof the system by saying, if we have this objective list of standards and coursework and scores, then we'll make sure every every student gets that. And what I would say is we've seen that doesn't work. And so I think what we need to do now is to build a system in which – this is what I would do if I were Zara of the World (laughs) – but to say that every every student is surrounded by a constellation of adults that knows them, their families, educators, mentors, and the student themselves Mm -hmm. to articulate for themselves what success is going to look like given who they are, given what their ambitions are here's what I need to be able to succeed. And this makes room for a student who may have such cognitive differences that they may never live alone to have a plan that works for them without being labeled. And it also allows for a student who may be twice exceptional in different ways to create their own plan. And we have to believe that if it's a student who's agentic and empowered, and if they are surrounded by adults who know them and care about them and want the best, that they are not going to hold them back. They are going to make realistic considerations that can always change about what they need, and how they get there. And then you create a system around them that empowers them to find the opportunities to build the skills that they want. And this sounds really abstract and impossible to do, but there are schools that do it. Yeah, there yeah. are programs that do it. Exactly. Right, And yeah. we need to make that spread. That's I like right. the idea of spread, not scale. Yep, yep. Because you can't scale this. It's right. not gonna look the same. That's right. But I think that's that's how we need to define success. And then we need to measure systems and processes mm-hmm. that say, is this what we're doing? And are we doing this well? Asking students, asking families, asking educators, right? Are, yeah. are you doing what you need to do? Do you have what you need to do? So that's how I would define it. Nice. And it is very different.
0: It's It's a very different paradigm. Um, and it requires, uh, going back to the funder role, it really requires funders now to both think differently and invest differently. Uh, what are your thoughts on that how how can how can funders support this kind of paradigm shift but at the same time still address you know the current challenges that we have so there's there's the point of yes we have to go through this paradigm shift but there's still a mess we need to fix
1: <laughs> yes right? yes um, for sure. And that's where I say there's a both end, right? Mm-hmm. And I do think this, this systems level work, this deep transformational work, one of the big shifts, and this is why I think a network like Grantmakers for Education is so important, there is no one funder who can do this. Right. I think there need to be coalitions of funders working, in some cases, maybe nationally on mm-hmm. big projects, like new assessments, but also regionally, right, at the state level, um, empowering local actors, foundations, advocates who are doing this work to kind of build new systems and structures. And so I, I will put we will put in the notes for this show a series of four diagrams. but remember I said different worldviews birth different systems, mm-hmm. different broad systems, different education approaches, different education systems. But, and this is a conversation of philanthropy, conventional philanthropy was birthed out of a very Cartesian Newtonian view of the world. That's right. We have a theory of change that we develop. It's very linear. We're going to fund you for two years. We're going to ask you for this data, right? And I think funders and others are having conversations now about what does equity in grant making mean? Right. Right. How do we get to racial justice in grant making? And I think humanistic philanthropy, looks very different, it is co-created, it is more flexible, It is longer term. It is measuring process as well as outcomes, right? So I think there are new ways that funders have an opportunity to think about their work and how they collaborate, um, even as they continue to do their own very important work in the spheres that are important to them and their boards. And so that, I think, is the opportunity um, to explore, which we will do here. And I know that we're doing programming as a network to really invite members um, to become part of that and to bring communities. And advocates and researchers into that work as well.
0: Terrific. Well, I'm I'm looking forward to learning more about this. And as a funder, as as the head of a of a, a funding institution, I'm I'm open to learning more about how we can play a more genuine and authentic role in bringing the community together, school districts and community together. Because funding is important, but it's it's just one element of what. Of what needs to be put into um, shifting the paradigm, not just in education, but in in like a, like we've talked about this whole notion of learning-centered kind of of environment that we can that we can build, in which schools are part of it, district is part of it, but the entire community uh, also needs to be part of it. Funding is just one element um, of what's needed.
1: Thank you, Richard. Really enjoyed our conversation today and really appreciate your leadership, uh, both here in Denver, where we both live, um, and nationally in our network. Thank you. Terrific.
0: Thank you, Alka, for having me.
1: Thanks for listening. The Future of Smart Podcast is a project of grantmakers for education and is made possible through the support of our generous member sponsors. If you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe and follow us on social media. You can find links to resources related to today's episode in the show notes. More episodes and events can be found at edfunders.org. To learn more about the future of SMART, visit ulca.com, U-L-C-C-A